can symbolize a need to belong to a group or a group of people who are slow, easily led, or an obstacle. Because cows provide milk for human consumption, they get... Oh! Hi! Sorry, you caught me while I was reading my dream interpretation dictionary. Uh, you see, I had a dream about cows last night, and I'm reading up on, on what those cows might mean in reality. Uh, no, I'm obviously just kidding. This is a bunch of baloney. But what is it that a dream interpretation dictionary like this can tell us about the book of Revelation and about the first resurrection that is so hotly debated by premillennialists and amillennialists and postmillennialists? That's the question that we seek to answer on today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a long one. Uh, by the way, my name is Chris Date, if you don't already know, and this is Theopologetics, a show where I discuss theology, that's the theo part of the name Theopologetics, and apologetics, the apologetics part of the name Theopologetics. And today we're going to be looking at the first resurrection, as the scene is called by John in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. And I'm going to make the case that... Um, Premillennialism is simply wrong, that it misunderstands Revelation 20, uh, that first resurrection. But I also think that typical amillennialist and postmillennialist interpretations are wrong as well, and I hope to uh, resolve that debate decisively um, by the time today's uh, show is over. It's going to be a, or at least it could be a bit of a long one. So if for some reason you're you're watching live right now and you don't think you're going to be able to stick around till the end, that's okay. Hi Susan, thanks for uh, for joining us. Um, if you're watching live and you can't stick around to the end, that's totally okay. Go ahead and just resume where you left off when the show gets archived after the live stream. Um, now, uh, I wanted to say a couple of things before I do dive into today's topic, though. First of all, um, I recently received a, um, a very gracious donation um, from a viewer slash listener, um, and it reminded me that uh, back when I did this this as a podcast only some 10 years ago, um, I did take donations uh, to help me uh, to uh, afford to be able to continue to do the show. Um, those of you who know that I'm also a regular contributor to Rethinking Hell will know that um, Rethinking Hell also takes donations, um, but if you, for some reason, aren't comfortable supporting our mission at Rethinking Hell, but you are comfortable supporting um, the, what we're doing here at Theopologetics, um, then maybe you would like to consider helping me out with the um, technology and the server, you know, renting and, and those various kinds of things that go into making Theopologetics uh, a reality. If that's you, uh, and if not, that's totally okay, uh, but if that's you, I would be grateful and you can just make an easy PayPal donation at the email address on your screen, Theopologetics apologetics at hotmail.com. 
Um, so yeah, that's just, I'm not, I'm not going to say any more about it. Just, I'd appreciate any, um, help that you can offer. I'm going to keep doing it even if I don't get any donations, but it was a nice, um, encouraging thing to receive that one. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention is that I am, um, uh, so far this YouTube show has been a every other week, um, live stream and that's going to continue. I'm not going to change that, but I do intend to start having off schedule, um, pre-recorded episodes of the apologetics on a variety of issues and one of those issues or one of the things that I recently decided I want to start doing is teaching first year undergrad Hebrew um, in uh, seminary quality uh, first you know first year Hebrew um, here in episodes of the apologetics off schedule um, for those of you who might be interested in um, refreshing some of the Hebrew study that you've already done or maybe learning it from the beginning maybe you'd like to receive a seminary quality um, Hebrew education in you know first year Hebrew uh, but maybe you don't have uh, you don't want to pay the thousands of dollars that can go into getting a degree at a brick-and-mortar institution or even an online institution um, for those of you that might want to take advantage of a resource like that, I intend to very soon start a series off of the normal um, bi-weekly or other every, every other week schedule, um, teaching, giving lectures. Each episode will be a lecture, the same kind of lecture that I'll be delivering at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. By the way, I forgot to mention, uh, The Apologetics is part of the Trinity uh, Commission, which is a network of podcasts and YouTube shows that uh, are related in one way, shape, or form to uh, Trinity College of the Bible and and theological seminary. This is the school at which Braxton Hunter is the president, um, and Jonathan Pritchett is vice president for academics. They host the increasingly popular Trinity Radio YouTube show, and uh, and it's also where Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101 teaches. It's also where Tim Stratton uh, teaches, and and a number of others, including least of all myself. Um, I intend to, and, and, and in the work, uh, in preparing to teach Hebrew and some other classes uh, at Trinity, um, but if you don't want to pay the money that would go into getting a whole degree, maybe you are just interested in getting, um, uh, developing a little bit of an ability to read the Bible in its original languages, um, then maybe you just want to watch a YouTube series for free, but you still want something that's seminary quality. If that's you, then just be on the lookout in this channel for episodes of The Apologetics called The Apologetics extra um, and I will have a series of those that will be undergrad you know first year seminary quality undergrad Hebrew um, uh, one lecture per episode they'll range from you know 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes or something like that um, but they will be uh, really what I think is really high quality I intend to make them some of the best out there if I can um, so be on the lookout for those if that's you now the uh, mention of these Hebrew lectures that I'm going to be doing uh, is a nice segue into a conversation that I had this morning, it's about 20 minutes, that I wanted to share with you um, if you're one of these people that maybe uh, wants to better uh, be better equipped to read the Bible in its original languages. I'll say no more, uh, but I'll be back after this short 20-minute conversation that I had this morning. I hope that you uh, find it useful. Here we go. I both really appreciate what it can do now, uh, and I'm also really looking forward to what it's going to be. 
I'm joined today by Kevin Grosso, founder of Biblingo.org, a program that's seeking to make the biblical languages easier to learn. I've started using biblical uh, Biblingo myself, and I both really appreciate what it can do now, uh, and I'm also really looking forward to what it's going to be able to do in the future. So I asked Kevin to join me so that um, he could help me to tell you viewers uh, why you might want to give Bib Biblingo a shot. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, first, can you summarize for me and viewers your your education and your experience in the biblical languages so that we know that you're someone with extensive firsthand knowledge of studying the languages? Yeah, so um, my background is linguistics. So I did my MA in linguistics from a small school in Dallas, Texas called uh, Dallas International University now. So I did my MA in linguistics with, a, with an emphasis in Bible translation. Um, and now, currently, I am a PhD student uh, in Israel, doing my PhD in Hebrew. Um, and my, my main focus is syntax and semantics. Um, I do both Greek and Hebrew. So I recently had a, an article published on the, the Pisces Christi debate um, that some people might have seen. Um, so I, yeah, I basically try to use the tools in um, theoretical linguistics to come to a better understanding of uh, the text, right? Um, so I've learned to speak biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew here um, in Jerusalem at, at the Polis Institute and taking other classes. And um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of who I am as far as the, the languages go. So you've got a little bit of experience. <laughs> uh, no, a little bit. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, why might the average Christian, not just seminary students, but just the average Christian, want to learn biblical languages? I mean, uh, from your experience and from the experiences of others you've talked to, how might everyday Christians benefit from studying Hebrew and Greek? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's something that I think as Christians, we often don't give as much weight to. Um, compared to um, other religions. So, you know, in Islam, for example, people um, want to learn Arabic. And even if they don't understand Arabic, they'll, they'll learn the Quran in Arabic. Um, and, and the same goes for, for the Jewish people. You know, they, they're very proud of, of learning Hebrew and they want to know Hebrew and they, want to, they don't want to read a translation. And, and I think the, the biggest barrier for a lot of you know, like everyday Christians, is just that it's it's viewed with this sort of mystical, you know, like uh, I I can't possibly understand, you know, Greek and Hebrew. It's just so hard. Like this, it's just not true. Like, their their language is just like any other language, and humans are built to learn and use languages. And and I think you know, at the end of the day, if if you're given the right resources and the right tools, and you just start to le learn and use the languages. Um, in in meaningful ways, then then you'll learn them. Um, so for, I mean, I think as far as like motivation goes, you know, at the end of the day, um, every every translation is an interpretation. So you know, you you are you are reading the text when you read an when you read a translation, you're reading it through someone else's interpretation, and those interpretations, um, you know, they're great, right? Like. We should be translating the scriptures into other languages. It's 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 awesome. But um, you know, if you can have access to to the original um, to the original language, you can you can 
get to meanings that might have been screened out mm-hmm. by that interpretation um, and that that might be closer to to what the author actually meant and and you know there are lots of examples of this um, but 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 I but I do I, I would just encourage people that you know it, it's a very real possibility that you can you can learn the languages and you can you can read the text in the original with understanding like that's that's a very doable thing mm-hmm. um, if if you know how to do it. Well, and that's that's really the key question because um, it does seem as though learning biblical languages can be extremely challenging in a variety of settings and for a variety of people. Even somebody like me who picks up new skills very quickly, uh, learning the biblical languages is is even right now after several years of study proving to be somewhat challenging. So, why do you think that is? What what sorts of deficiencies do you think you see in traditional methods of teaching biblical languages? Yeah. So. Um, th- those of you that have, you know, if anyone's heard me before talk about this, I, th- I kind of use these same analogies, and and one of the ones I go back to is is basically this: the difference between, um, you know, knowing like music theory and knowing how to play the violin. So a lot of times, what what you are taught in seminary or like traditional methods of teaching, it's it's music theory. It's it's how it's learning about the language, um, and and that's. A different thing than than learning a language. So you know, if I if I meet someone on the street and and I ask them, you know, what's the passive participle of of break in English? Most people won't be able to tell you what a passive participle is, and they and they won't tell you what the form is, right? But but they use it all the time. And so so the point is that like what what you're doing in in learning a language is is learning um, how how to use the language to describe the world around you and and that the way you do that is you practice doing that right you you are are given um, situations where you see the world and you describe the world or you have the world described to you and so and so if you if you encounter situations like that you will start to learn the language um it's just how our brains work Mm -hmm. we are designed to to learn languages so if you have that sort of comprehensible input and then you're given the space to practice that then then you will learn yeah to use an analogy from my own personal experience um it's it's one thing to be in a classroom and read a textbook about software programming and this or that uh software language but it's quite another thing to actually get down and have to solve real life problems with the language and um there's just no comparison between those two experiences so um so now that we sort of uh, briefly talked about uh, a couple of those deficiencies in traditional ways of teaching biblical languages how does biblingo um seek to um over Overcome those kinds of obstacles. Uh, how, how does it seek to improve upon these traditional methods of teaching biblical languages? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I would say that you know the I, I think good music theory is important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, so it, it's it's not that the tr- traditional methods are are bad. It's just that they are doing something different than teaching you the language. Mm-hmm. Right. They're teaching you about the language. So, so the. I mean, with Biblingo, we we really have tried to do both. Um, you know, so in in the beginning of each lesson, you'll have a short grammar explanation video explaining to you, just giving you a little overview of of what you're getting into. Um, and then we've given you you know um, pictures and videos of of reconstructions of the biblical world um, and sentences in Greek and Hebrew that pair with those pictures and videos. And you you use those sentences, right? So you have to um, 
you know have multiple choice where you see the the action take place and you you know select the correct answer and then and then also you you have to type it out right and and what that does is it forces you to start to think in in the languages right you begin to just try to describe the world with Greek or Hebrew and at the end of the day that's exactly what we want when you're when you're reading the text when you're reading the text in Greek or Hebrew what we want is for you to be able to think okay this is what the world was like back then as I as I read this text mm -hmm. right um, and, and and that's that's really what we're doing when we're reading in English right we're we're thinking oh, okay um, you know this simple sentence means this about that world right and so so that's exactly how we want you to think in, in Greek and Hebrew as well. Mm. So it's kind of like, say, Rosetta Stone or Duolingo, but if those things had been made in the first century, that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. That's that's where a lot of our inspiration came from. Um, you know, we kind of tried to merge Rosetta Stone and Duolingo, kind of take the best from both worlds. Um, and then also our, our Bible reading module is, is based on uh, the software link if, if you're familiar with that I, i'm not but that was what i was going to ask you next was that it's not just these um language lessons and, and alphabet lessons features that you've got and, and also by the way flashcards as well um uh, that you can handle in different ways but you've also got this bible reading thing and, and as far as i can tell it's sort of integrated with uh or or it incorporates the progress that you as a user have already been making in the language lessons can you unpack this this bible reading feature for us a bit yeah, exactly. So um, this is something that, you know, there are a lot of um, introductory textbooks to Greek and Hebrew. Um, it seems like there are new ones that come out every year. And and one of the, the very difficult things for students is is what they do next. Right. And so even even for us, right, like once you go through Biblingo, like, OK, where where do you go? Right. What What's the natural next step? Well, the natural next step for people is, you know, getting into the text and but Part of the problem with getting into the text is, you know, that you get the question, which text, right? Which chapter, where do I start? Um, and so what we've tried to do is we've tried to make this, um, you know, an easy bridge to getting into the text. So so what you can do is you can order the words based on, or order the text, I'm sorry, based on the amount of words you know in that chapter. So you can say, give me the chapter where I know the most words, and we, we've been keeping track of all the words you know, right, in that you've been learning in, in our language learning module. So then you can um, basically go through the whole New Testament or Old Testament um, based on the chapters or books that you know the most vocabulary in. Mm. So it's just a customized graded reader of, of the entire Bible. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then as you're going through that text, um, you know, the, the words are highlighted in different colors um, based on whether you know the word or not or how well you know the word. And you can click on the word and add it to a flashcard deck and it changes the color, right? And so basically we're just keeping track of, of all of this information for you so that you can go through text in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. I'm a really big fan of this. Um, what are some of the uh, options that you make available in Biblingo for, for making it flexible and, and, and accommodating accommodating each individual user's particular needs. I mean, so for example, uh, and I'm sure there are other these these you can talk about, but uh, you you don't have just one specific pronunciation that you use. You actually give users the option to pick from multiple. So tell us about these kinds of things. Yeah. So you know, this is one of the one of the big issues, especially in Greek. Is you know, okay, 
each resource has its own pronunciation. And, and so if we just said, hey, we're going to be totally agnostic when it comes to the pronunciation. We're going to try to give you as many options as, as you could desire. Um, so in Greek, we have four options. We have the uh, modern pronunciation, Erasmian, uh, reconstructed koine, and um, what's called like reconstructed high koine. Um, and so there's, you know, we have explanations for, for what those are exactly. Um, and then for Hebrew, we have a biblical pronunciation and a modern Hebrew pronunciation. Um, and then, you know, in our... You don't, you don't differentiate between language. Sephardic and Ashkenazi or whatever? Uh, <laughs> I, I, it, I, you know, I've gotten that question like two or three times. And I'm like, you know, the reason why I, we're doing so many in Greek and not many in Hebrew is because... You know, in in I, I've gotten it two or three times for Hebrew. We get it all the time in Greek, mm -hmm. um, and and you know, at the end of the day, like most people don't know what Sephardic yeah. is. <laughs> sure. So, so um, yeah. And then the other thing, you know, we we actually just added this this very recently um, to the Bible reading module. We uh, allowed uh, um, have a feature now where you can like basically bulk archive words. And so basically like if you go through mounts, right? And you know, okay, I know all the words in the Bible with, you know, the frequency 30 or 40 times or greater, right? Now you can you can um, tell tell our software, okay, I know all the words 30 or 40 times or greater. And you can just start there with, with that text. So it, it allows you to come from other textbooks um, in a way that, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, very cool. Um, now, I am at a school where uh, I'll be teaching undergrad um, first year uh, Hebrew and possibly Greek. Um, and I'm very excited about the prospect of possibly um, integrating Biblingo a little bit into the classroom. Um, but there are some challenges with that. Like, so for example, you know, if, if the um, course that I'm teaching is going through, say, Basics of Biblical Hebrew, you know, Pratico and Van Pelt, it's going to have the grammar, uh, the grammar and concepts taken in a particular sequence, in a particular order. And of course, the vocabulary is going to be taught in a particular order as well. Um, and th that's not necessarily going to line up one-to-one -one with the Bible lessons in, in Biblingo. So how, how do you think that um, professors can integrate Biblingo into a classroom where they're already taking students through uh, one grammar or another? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question and something we've, we've talked a lot about internally. Um, I mean, I, I will say the, the in the the long run, like we're we're working on a lot of things to to integrate these kinds of things. So so one of the one of the things is right now in the flashcard module we have like a preset deck um, group. So if you know you or some other teacher said, hey, like I have to use this textbook. This is what I've been doing, or I don't even have time, you know, to to change at this point. It's too late. Um, you know what what we can do is we can basically add in all of the the basics of biblical hebrew flashcards um you know chapter by chapter into the database so that they get you know the pictures and the audio with those flashcards um, but they have it now in the order of of the textbook so that's something that we um already have in there we just haven't had the the bandwidth to like actually put in like all the textbooks mm -hmm. um, but that is something that like you know if if you or whatever other teacher said, hey, like I really need this done. I would use it for my classroom. Like we we would just try to prioritize that. Um, the other thing, where we're, we are actually just um, getting, well, we're, we're just developing right now, and, and we're hoping to get out in the next month or two, are the what are we're calling fluency drills. Um, so basically, it will just be um, these drills that allow you to practice paradigms in a way that. 
um, will help create help build fluency. Um, and so in theory, what you could do is you could um, practice those paradigms based on the order of a different textbook, mm. right? Instead of going through the language learning module um, in, in our progression, you could you could do it, you know, in, in whatever textbook you were using. Yeah. Um, so those are the two biggest things. I mean, and then obviously, like, if you're in an exegesis class, you know, that would be where you would learn the, you use the sort of bywording module and like getting into the text. Right. I, I was really intrigued by what you said there about uh, paradigms because uh, a lot of viewers may not even know what you're talking about there. But, um, you know, when, when you have a, um, let, let's say the, the cal stem, for example, in Hebrew, you know, one of the things you're taught very early on in verbs in, in Hebrew is the, 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 uh, the 10 different conjugations in the cal stem, right? So the, the uh, uh, first person, second person masculine, second person feminine, and so forth. And and the way of memorizing this is very often just you memorize this table in a particular sequence, and you just remember that in this order in the sequence, it's second person plural or whatever. Um, but that's not how we do language in real life. Um, so I'm really intrigued to see how, how you um, improve upon memorizing paradigms. I think that's going to be really cool. One feature that I am hoping you guys are working on, and I just don't know, I, I'm interested to hear the answer to this question, but um, it seems like there's a real opportunity here for something I can pull up on my phone, uh, and not just in a browser, but an actual app. Is, is that something that you guys are working on? Um, it is It is uh, in the future. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, honestly, uh, the in the immediate future, what, what we're working on is um, these fluency drills, a reading comprehension, um, like sort of graded reader um, exercises, um, and then um, a student dashboard, and and then the the next big thing will actually be um, a desktop um, app. And the reason why we're doing desktop before mobile is just because there are um, specifically Bible translators in different parts of the world that that um, can't you know use it yeah. because of the internet right now. Um, and so, so we we're going to prioritize that just because of, um, I mean, yeah, that that's where we are. But but we're hoping by, you know, um, you know, mid to late next year, we'll we'll also begin to to do a mobile app as well. Awesome. Well, I'll look forward to that. And in the meantime, I'll make very good use of the uh, of the of the browser, um, the, the thing you load up in a browser. Um, okay. Well, as we start to sort of draw this to a close, can you talk a little bit about? Um, what pricing might look like for people that are interested and, and do you have some sort of a free trial that they can um, experiment with? Yeah, yeah. So there's a 10-day free trial. Um, it doesn't cost anything. Just sign up, test drive it. Um, right now, so so our pricing is based on, on several different um, you know things. So you could do a monthly plan, a, a half annual plan, or an annual plan. Um, and then you, with that, you can do one language or two languages. And within that, you can do either, um, you know, the, the language learning module and the flashcard module, the vibrating module and the flashcard module, or both. Um, so th there's all these different plans. Um, basically, if you want to do like a, the language learning module and, you know, um, for, for one language um, and the flashcard module, it, it starts at $18. Um, if you want to do, you know, everything we have for both languages, it starts at forty dollars a month, and obviously it goes down if you, um, you know, if you extend the length, um, you know, to annual or it goes down per month, right? Um, and then, and then, but right now we're we're, we're doing a big uh, Black Friday Cyber Monday 
um, sale for the rest of this week. So every uh, monthly plan is 30% off. The half annual plan is 40% off and all the annual plans are 50% off. But you have to provide a coupon code in order to unlock the deal, right? Yeah. So can you tell user or tell our viewers how, how what code to use if they want to unlock those deals? Yeah. Or do you not know them off so the top I of your head? I, I, so that that isn't my jurisdiction. I see. Um, I think it's it's uh, save thirty. But if you have a if you have a maybe you can put it in the description. I'm happy to to send. I it will. After. I will. And, and yes, it is. Um, it is save thirty with no space. Save forty and save fifty. I'm, I've got the email from Nick right here. Uh, so yeah, I, I encourage people to check that out. Um, and, and today we're recording this, and I'm going to air this on Monday, November thirtieth. You said it goes through the rest of this week, so it ends on Friday, December fourth. Is that right? Right. Okay. Cool. Uh, and then also, um, I think you've got a friend referral program as well. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah. Basically, we're just trying to, you know, give people incentive um, to tell their friends to learn Greek and Hebrew. Um, so basically, the way it works is you get a code um, and you, um, you know, give that code to your friends. If they activate the their um, their trial, so if basically they go to a paid subscription, um, then you you get five dollars off, um, you know, your next purchase. So not that, not just the referrer, works. but the referred as well. I think, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Very cool. Uh, and um, you know, viewers, if you want uh, to take advantage of that deal, and I'm by virtue of this show the one who's referring you, feel free to email me at the email address you can see on the screen, and I'll give you my code, and we'll each benefit from that deal. Um, so yeah, hopefully viewers will check that out. And also one thing you said that I think is really fantastic, you said if somebody activates a, a, a subscription after taking advantage of the free trial, I say that because it, you might've experienced this, a lot of places when you do a free trial, you supply your, your uh, payment information up front and you have, to, you have to opt out and it just automatically kicks on if you don't. But I was very pleased to see that you don't go that route. You, you have to, you don't ask for the, the payment information until it's time to activate it subscription and i thought that was really admirable so thank you for that um last question where can my viewers go online to find biblingo and and get signed up and get started if that's something that they're interested in doing yep biblingo.org um so not.com <laughs> uh but org and uh yeah you, there's there's free trial buttons everywhere and like chris said you don't have to to put in your payment information um and but you'll, you'll be reminded it's it's very easy to do it if if you want to and uh, then you can get Chris his his five dollars <laughs> and and get your own five dollar discount. And get as well. your own five dollars. Yeah, it's not just me who benefits. And give us a little bit. Of and help. give that's right. Give Biblingo a little bit as well. All right. Well, Kevin, it's been a blast. Uh, I really am um, thankful for what you and the rest of the team there at Biblingo are doing, and I'm really excited about seeing um, what sorts of things uh, Biblingo makes possible in the future. Thank you for spending this time today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So I hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, and even if you didn't enjoy it, hopefully it at least um, uh, got you a little bit interested in perhaps giving Biblingo a shot. Again, the website is biblingo.org. Uh, it's very similar to Rosetta Stone and Duolingo. Um, I've started to use it and I'm really enjoying it so far. And as Kevin and I talked about there toward the end of the recording, they do have a Black, Fi Black Friday deal uh, slash Cyber Monday deal uh, that lasts until this coming Friday, December 4th. 
Um, so if you want to save 30% on a monthly payment plan, um, or 40% on a half yearly plan or 50% on an annual plan, you can enter the words, uh, the word save 30 S A V E three zero without a space, uh, as a coupon code at checkout or save 40. If it's a half yearly plan or save 50, if it's an annual plan, um, I think it'll be well worth your, uh, your while. So make sure you start your free trial like right away. So you have a few days to try it out before you, um, run out of time to use that coupon code. And, if you do decide to activate a subscription and you want to get $5 off by taking advantage of the referral program, then um, please don't hesitate to email me at the email address on your screen, theapologetics at hotmail.com, and I will email you back with my activation code. Um, I, I, I won't deny that I like the prospect of saving, you know, getting five bucks off of my credit, you know, to my plan with everyone I refer, um, but really it's it's an opportunity for you as well, and, and I really believe in what Biblingo is doing. Uh, and so I would love for you to support them if learning biblical languages is something that you intend to do. So I just wanted to play that uh, and get that out of the way. And now we will dive into the topic at hand today, which is the book of Revelation. All right. So let's um, switch over to the topic at hand. Uh, hey, hi, Blake. Thanks for, for uh, joining us for the live show. I don't know if you just arrived. If you did, you missed a really cool interview with the founder of Biblingo.org. Uh, so check that out. Um, maybe after the show, you can go back and watch the first few, you know, first 20 minutes and, and see that interview. All right. Let's dig into the book of Revelation. Now, um, in a previous episode of The Apologetics, I introduced uh, those of you who viewers, those of you viewers who aren't already sort of familiar with the theological lingo. I introduced you to the topic topic of eschatology, the study of the so-called end times. Um, by the way, I should say that as I go through these slides, I'm going to be less attentive to the live chat as I was able to be during that interview that was pre-recorded and that we just got done playing. So um, the best way to get my attention while we're going through these slides is to tag me um, because that shows up uh, highlighted uh, in the chat and I'll be able to see it. However, please try not to derail me during the course of going through these slides. I'll try to save a few minutes at the end to answer any questions that you might have, all right? But anyway, uh, so in a previous episode when I was going through Matthew chapter 24 uh, and I was introducing you to the topic of preterism, I talked about eschatology, the study of the so-called end times, and I introduced you to two uh, taxonomies of eschatological views. In that episode, I focused on the, the, the taxonomy that's based on the timing of the book of Revelation. So futurist, historicist, idealist, and preterist. But I also very briefly, very briefly mentioned another taxonomy, and here we're going to dig into that taxonomy a little bit more, which is taxonomies around the nature of the thousand years that John talks about or writes about in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And the taxonomy that I'm talking about here is uh, the, tax the taxonomy of premillennialist, uh, amillennialist, and postmillennialist. Um, pre post and amillennialist. Uh, those three views are uh, the reason for those three views um, 
being a taxonomy and, and, and having the word millennial there in the names of the views is because they're based on this text that I've got on the screen from Revelation chapter 20, where it's where John writes that he saw an angel seize the dragon uh, and bound him for a thousand years. And then some martyrs that were behead, had been beheaded came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So based on this passage, we have these three views. First of all, uh, first of all, premillennialism. So premillennialists believe that Christ will return and then reign on earth with resurrected saints for 1,000 years. And then at the end of those 1,000 years, the rest of the dead will be resurrected. All right, so that's, that's premillennialism. And within premillennialism, you have... Um, uh, you have dispensational premillennialism with its rapture uh, theology, and you've got the sort of mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib rapture views all within dispensational premillennialism. And then you've also got sort of more historic, less dispensational uh, premillennialism. Um, so, yeah, that's premillennialism. The point is, is what, what all those various uh, variations of premillennialism have in common is that they believe that in our future, <coughs> Christ will return and then um, the, the, uh, there will be a resurrection of the saints, and then with them, Christ will reign for a thousand years before the rest of the dead rise. Then there's postmillennialism, and um, there's some variations within postmillennialism as well, particularly if you, if you contrast uh, Reformation-era postmillennialism with modern postmillennialism. But uh, basically, uh, postmillennialists would say that there will be a thousand years, or, have or maybe we're in the middle of a period of time symbolized by a thousand years, uh, and during this period of time, there will be uh, worldwide Christianity uh, on Earth. And then after that period of a thousand years, a golden age of the church, a golden age of Christianity or whatever, then um, Christ will return and there will be the resurrection of the dead and so forth. Uh, and then there's a third view, the view that I hold, which is amillennialism. The reason it's called amillennialism is is based on that first letter A, uh, which is you'll be familiar from words like atheist or um, I can't think of any others off the top of my head, but it's a way of negating the rest of the word. So an amillennialist like me thinks there is no literal 1,000 years, but rather the millennium or the 1,000 years in Revelation chapter 20 symbolizes the present church age that we live in now during which Christ reigns in heaven. All right. So these are the, uh, and of course, so much more could be said here, um, but this is these are the three basic views within this taxonomy. All right. Um, now, when it comes to the topic that we're going to be focusing on today, the, the first resurrection, each of these three views interprets this passage a little bit differently. This passage where John writes that he sees martyrs came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. All right. So when we look at this phrase, first resurrection, and the scene that um, that precedes it, the, 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 the martyrs coming to life and reigning with Christ, um, the millennial views interpret them in a couple of different ways. Premillennialists take the phrase first resurrection fairly straightforwardly uh, and the scene that is being described or interpreted, and we'll get into that in a minute, as first resurrection. They take it pretty straightforwardly. Namely, and, and here's just one of many premillennialist um, uh, interpreters of the book of Revelation. This is Craig Coaster. I think I'm pronouncing Coaster right. Maybe Coyster or something like that. I apologize if I butchered that. But in his commentary in the Anchor Yale Bible Commentary series on the book of Revelation, he writes that this first resurrection 
refers to the faithful who have died and are restored to endless life that begins in the millennium, millennium and continues in New Jerusalem. Others are raised on a second occasion at the end of the millennial vision. All right. So for a premillennialist, generally speaking, and evidently there's somebody in the chat who it holds to some sort of a heavenly premillennialist view. I've never heard of any such thing. Um, you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm just, I guess, trying to categorize the three dominant views within Christianity. Um, so, but but according to this view, it's really straightforward. The first resurrection is a resurrection of Christians at the beginning of the thousand years, and then there'll be another second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. Um, so if you want to put it on a timeline it, to help you better understand it, let's say that this leftward, or sorry, rightward pointed arrow represents time, and this vertical line here represents now, um, as it is labeled. Uh, according to premillennialism, the first resurrection happens when Christ returns and bodily resurrects the saints. That's the first resurrection, an event in our future in which all the saints are raised bodily from the dead when Christ returns. Then there is a thousand year period of time that John calls a thousand years, and then at the end of that, Christ uh, raises the rest of the dead, um, including any um, believers who died during that time. I guess there may be some possibility for that because you have converts who convert to Christianity after the, the resurrection and rapture. Um, but it would also and largely include the rest of the dead, namely the unbelieving dead, so the lost, right? Those who will go on to be damned. So this is a fairly typical, um, I would say, the dominant premillennialist view, uh, and it encapsulates both historic and dispensational premillennialisms. I don't know anything about this heavenly premillennialism that is evidently being represented in the live chat right now. Now, amillennialism interprets the first resurrection differently, and there are two dominant amillennialist views, two popular amillennialist interpretations of the first resurrection. All right. Um, here's a first one, and this is the more ancient one, it seems. Uh, this is represented by um, Augustine from the 4th or 5th century. And according, and this is a quote from G.K. Beale's commentary in the New, New International Greek Testament commentary series on the book of Revelation. Um, G.K. Beale writes, the classical Augustinian perspective is that the resurrection of life of believers, the resurrection life of believers in Revelation 20, 40 to 6, sorry, 24 to 6, is spiritual regeneration, right? So, so it's not resurrection at all, at least not in any ordinary sense of the word, but rather it refers to salvific regeneration that we Christians experience in the here and now when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are saved. So according to this amillennialist view, here again is a timeline. This vertical line represents the here and now, right now. And um, this vertical line represents either the ascension of Christ or Pentecost a little bit later or 70 AD, still later in that century, depending upon which amillennialist you're speaking to. And the first resurrection is actually the salvific regeneration that believers experienced, at least beginning at that vertical line, Ascension, Pentecost, or 70 AD, and possibly even extending back further than that, because I would expect a lot of people to think that regeneration was something that was experienced even prior to uh, the time of Christ, so I've marked that as questionable. But either way, according to this amillennialist perspective, no, Jamie, this is not my view. Um, I'm, I'm going to get to my view. Remember, so I, the, I've been pitching, I've been uh, promoting this upcoming episode as me disproving both premillennialist 
and popular amillennialist slash postmillennialist interpretations of uh, the first resurrection. I haven't even gotten to my interpretation yet, my amillennialist interpretation, the right one. Uh, I'm just going through the more popular views right now, okay? So, uh, so in this first of the two major amillennialist interpretations of the first resurrection, the first resurrection isn't an event at all. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a, a single event in time a cosmic events of, of sorts in the way that the second resurrection is, right? The second resurrection in amillennialism uh, is after the uh, thousand years, which represents the church age. And it's when um, it, it's a singular event in history, at which point all the dead are raised. But in this amillennialist view, the first resurrection isn't such an event. It's rather an, an event within the lifetime of every single believer. Um, and that event is the moment of their regeneration. All right, and that's why I've kind of made the line dotted here. So it's it's a first resurrection that's taking place over and over and over again throughout the church age, uh, whenever a, a believer becomes regenerate. All right, so that's that's I think the older um, amillennial understanding of the first resurrection, but not the more popular one. The more popular one is actually a little bit more novel, a little bit more recent. Um, Beale, this is his view. He, he puts it this way, the parallel with Revelation 6-9 suggests strongly that the scene here is also picturing deceased saints reigning in heaven and not on earth. And he says this is also apparent from the 42 out of 46 uses of the word throne in Revelation where it is um, in heaven. All right. And so he says that in this in this second amillennialist and more popular amillennialist interpretation of the first resurrection, believers' physical death translates them directly into a state of spiritual resurrection, a continuation of the soul's existence, an escalated stage of the spiritual resurrection that took place in human life. All right. So, the, so it's talking about the onset of the blissful intermediate state, the onset of the beatific vision um, that believers are thought to experience as soon as they die and are ushered immediately into the spiritual presence of God. So on this second, more recent and more popular amillennialist interpretation of the first resurrection, you've got a timeline, you've got now, you've got ascension of Christ or Pentecost or 70 AD, depending upon which amillennialist you're speaking to. Um, and then uh, from that point onward, and perhaps previous to that as well, whenever one of God's people would die, they would immediately be ushered consciously in a disembodied soul into the presence of God, one in which they are experiencing the blissful presence of God and continue to experience there throughout the um, intermediate state. And then at the end of the church, ra church age is the second resurrection, which is the, re the bodily resurrection of all humankind. So you can see that again here, we have something very similar to the first amillennialist interpretation of the first resurrection, in that we're not talking about, when we're talking about the first resurrection, we're not talking about a singular event in human history akin to the second resurrection, but rather we're seeing an event that happens over and over and over again, multiple millions of times throughout the church age and possibly prior to that as well. Um, and that event is, is in the life of any individual human uh, believer when they die and go into being into the presence of God, all right? So those are the three um, dominant views. The premillennialist view, um, where the first resurrection refers to the bodily resurrection of believers when Christ returns at the beginning of a thousand years and at the end the rest of the dead are raised bodily. No, the heavenly premillennial is not the most consistent with conditional immortality. Um, my view is, and we'll get to that. Uh, the older, less popular amillennialist understanding of the first resurrection is that it refers to the salvific regeneration of believers. 
The second and the the um, more recent and more popular amillennialist interpretation of the first resurrection is the onset of a believer's intermediate state. And then finally, postmillennialism, and uh, there may be postmillennial interpretations, particularly in history, that I'm not familiar with, uh, but it seems to me that I've seen postmillennialists um, embrace one or the other of those two amillennialist interpretations. These are the three most popular understandings of the first resurrection, or so it seems to me, and they all suffer from the exact same problem. And the problem is um, uh, decisive. I mean, the, the problem is insurmountable, as far as I can tell anyway, uh, insurmountable by any one of these views. And that problem is that they all treat the phrase first resurrection as a description of what takes place in the vision. As a description of these martyred saints that John sees coming to life in one sense or another. All right? Now that may not seem like a problem to you, um, but it is, and I'll tell and I'll show you why. You see, most Christians, it seems to me, think of prophetic visions in Scripture, especially the prophetic vision recorded in the book of Revelation, as if a seer, a prophet, is seeing like a newsreel, a news recording of the future sent back in time on Blu-ray disc. And John or when he, any of the other uh, you know, prophetic seers pops this future recording of news on, on Blu-ray and pops it into a Blu-ray player and watches it on his TV. So he's literally seeing the future um, as if watching it unfold on TV. Uh, or you might you might think of it this way: it's it's akin to a a, a, a diviner, a, a, a spiritist, looking into a crystal ball and seeing the future in the crystal ball. In this picture that I put up on the screen, I think there's a football game or something, and so it's as if the 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 this spiritist is is looking into the crystal ball and seeing a few you know, the results of a future football game, so you can bet on it or something like that, right? However, you whatever sort of analogy you want to use, these capture the the main major misunderstanding that most Christians have of the nature of biblical prophetic imagery. And, and the reason they're misunderstanding it is because in, in the Bible, seers, biblical prophets, when they see the future, are not actually seeing the future. That might seem a little blasphemous or, or um, sacrilegious or something like that, but it's not. And I'll explain what I mean. I'm not saying they're not seeing something that represents the future. I'm just saying what they're seeing is not actually the future. Rather, in Scripture, what seers, pro you know, prophets receiving visions of the future, what they are receiving is something more like... What I just, what you saw me pretend to be doing when I started the show, looking at a dream interpretation dictionary. What seers are doing is seeing a vision in which the future is foretold by means of symbols of various sorts. And so I was reading from the books, this book that you've got see on the screen right now. Um, when the show started, I was reading from its entry on cow. And it explains that cows are slow moving and can symbolize obstacles, lethargy, or laziness. They're docile and mostly harmless. So a cow in your dream can symbolize a passive or docile nature and etc. Um, now, just to be clear, I'm offering this only as an analogy. I'm not saying that dream interpretation dictionaries are actually um, helpful, you know, uh, or anything like that today. I think they're bogus. But the point is, is that it, um, what the dream interpretation dictionary type of thing helps us to realize um, or, or, or helps us to grasp is the notion of seeing something that, ha you know, seeing something in reality, but not 
uh, but, but presented in the form of symbols, right? In the same way that you might have some sort of psychological thing going on that allegedly is being interpreted by your brain and, and, and presented in your dream in the form of a symbol like a cow, in a similar way, all throughout scripture, when prophets, when seers see the future, what they are seeing is symbols. Those symbols represent real future events, but they are not seeing those events. They are seeing symbols that represent future events. And to prove that, I'm going to go through a, what may turn out to be, depending upon how long I talk on each of these, a lengthy survey in scripture, culminating in the very book that we're talking about today, the book of Revelation, but beginning with the paradigmatic dream interpreter, which is uh, the, the word for which is oneirocritic. And, and who is the Bible's paradigmatic dream interpreter, the Bible's paradigmatic oneirocritic? It's Joseph. You can see this all the way back from at least as early as Genesis 37. All right. Um, for Ryan, in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians, these are not prophetic visions that are being described. They're simply telling you, they're, they're simply writing down, Paul is writing down future events in a didactic prophetic fashion, but they're not describing visions they've seen. But as you'll see, beginning now, when, when prophets see visions, what they are seeing are future events told by means of symbols. So I'll walk you through that. At least as early as Genesis 37, you can see this in with Joseph, as who I've been calling the Bible's paradigmatic oneirocritic. In Genesis 37, verses 6 and 7, Joseph tells this dream in which he's got a sheaf of grain, a sheaf of corn, a, a sheaf of some sort of, you know, a, a bundle of grain, of wheat. It, it rises up, it stands tall, and then all, his brothers, Joseph's brothers' sheaves or bundles of wheat all bow down to his own. So this is what Joseph sees in his dream, sheaves or bundles bowing down. But then look at what its interpretation is. Um, and, and this actually isn't Joseph's interpretation. This is how obvious it was to his own brothers. His brothers say to him in Genesis 37 verse 8, Are you indeed to reign over us? Uh, are you indeed to rule over us? Now, this is what got them so angry. Joseph had this prophetic dream uh, in which his own family was going to... Uh, or uh, He saw a dream in which, uh, which represented, which symbolized his, his own family ultimately submitting to his own rule. And, and that's the interpretation of the imagery. Joseph's brothers submitting to his rule. Just a little bit in the very next verse in Genesis 37, Joseph recounts another dream in which the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to him in the dream. By the way, somebody in the chat, Daniel says, please address this later. Do you see a problem with the rest of the dead coming to what appears to be first resurrection sort of life? No, I don't see a problem with that, but you'll have to uh, ask again after my presentation is over. Okay. So, what is the imagery in this dream that Joseph had? The imagery is celestial bodies bowing, the sun, the moon, and stars. But what does it represent? The same thing as his previous dream. Joseph's father says, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? You see, this is, um, uh, well, and this is the interpretation. Again, not Joseph's, but it's his own father's. He understood what the imagery in the dream represents. The interpretation of the imagery is Joseph's family submitting to his rule. So, so far, in this, at this very beginning of the survey of biblical visions, we see that the imagery of sheaves bowing is, symbolizes 
Joseph's brothers submitting to him. And the, the imagery of celestial bodies bowing symbolizes Joseph's family submitting to his rule. Let's continue. Um, now we're going to get to see Joseph do the dream interpreting. We're going to get to see Joseph be the Oniro critic that he becomes the paradigm of. Um, so in, this is in Genesis chapter 40, verses 9 to 11. Joseph is in prison. You might recall that he was sent there by Potiphar because Potiphar's wife lied and said that Joseph had made sexual advances on her um, when in reality it was the other way around and Joseph pushed her away. Uh, you know, said, no, I don't want to have any part of that. So, um, so uh, Joseph is sent to prison. And while in prison, uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker uh, arrive in prison as well. And they have dreams. Um, we read in Genesis 40, the cupbearer's dream. He says, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. The clusters ripened into grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So among other things, one of the things in the imagery is these three budding branches. But now let's look at the interpretation. Acting as what would become the Bible's paradigmatic Oniro critic, Joseph says this is the dream's interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift you up, uh, lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So what is the interpretation or the meaning of the three branches in the dream? Three days. The same is true of the baker's dream. The baker goes on in, Ge in Genesis 40 to describe his own dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost one there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. What is the image? Three bread baskets or cake baskets. What is its interpretation? Well, Joseph says it. This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So what is the meaning or interpretation of the three bread baskets? Three days. So again, continuing this list of biblical visions that we've see, that we've begun going through, we see that the symbol of three budding branches represents three days in reality, and so likewise, three cake baskets in the baker's dream represent three days. After his time in prison, Joseph will go on to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. So in Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh dreams that he was standing by the Nile. Seven cows, attractive and plump, come up out of the Nile, and they are feeding in the reed grass. And then seven other cows, ugly and thin, come up out of the Nile and eat up the seven attractive, plump cows. So what do we see here? We see the imagery of seven cows. Jamie asks in the live chat, how did Joseph know? Uh, he had a gift. He had a divine gift. Pretty simple. So uh, in, in, in Pharaoh's dream... The, he sees seven cows. Then let's see what its interpretation is. Joseph goes on to explain. He says the seven cows, the seven good cows, are seven years. The seven lean and ugly cows are also seven years of famine. Seven years of great plenty, and after them, seven years of famine. So what do seven cows in the imagery symbolize? They symbolize seven years. Again, Pharaoh dreams in Genesis 41, um, he dreams a second time, seven ears of grain, plump and good, and after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. This is the same series of future events told by different symbols. Same underlying future reality. Very different symbols. 
Previously, it was the symbol of seven cows. Here, it's the, the symbol of seven ears of grain. What is its interpretation? The seven good ears are seven years. The seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine, etc. So what is the meaning of the seven ears of grain? Seven years. So again, we have the image of seven cows in the dream, in the biblical vision, but it symbolizes seven years. And seven ears of grain in the vision symbolize seven years. Are you starting to see the pattern here? Well, don't worry, it continues. Let's move on to another Oniro critic, not quite as paradig paradigmatic as an Oniro critic as Joseph, but nevertheless, something of a paradigmatic Oniro critic. I'm like, I just love that phrase, that's why I keep saying it, Parad paradigmatic Oniro critic. Uh, Daniel is who I'm talking about here, and the picture on the screen right now is the dream uh, that, Dan that Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, one of the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has, and Daniel is interpreting it for him. That dream is recorded in Daniel chapter 2. Um, Daniel describes for Nebuchadnezzar the dream that he had seen, and he says this, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image or statue. The head of this image was of fine gold, its legs of iron, etc., etc. A stone was cut out uh, by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them. And then it goes on. So what is the image here that I want to focus on? A statue's gold head. What is its interpretation? Well, Daniel answers it. Now I will tell the king its interpretation. Daniel begins in Daniel uh, 2, verse 36, uh, and then continuing through 38. You, O king, you are the head of gold. So the statue's golden head in the, in the vision symbolizes a nation's present king. Um, let's continue. This is another dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and this is recorded in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar recounts to Daniel, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and at its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the whole end of the whole earth. So what is the image here? A great tree. But what is its interpretation? Well, we keep reading, beginning in verse 19, Daniel says the interpretation, uh, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, etc., etc., it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. So the tree is you, O king. The tree is the image. The nation's present king is its interpretation. So again, we, we're seeing the pattern continue. A statue's gold head is the symbol that is seen by the biblical seer. The uh, nation's present king is that which is symbolized by that golden head. And likewise, the seer sees a great tree, but it's interpreted as symbolizing the nation's present king. Another couple of examples from Daniel, and then we'll turn to John in the book of Revelation. Uh, this is from Daniel 7, and now Daniel's no longer going to be his, he's no longer going to be an Oniro critic for another person. He's going to be the seer this time, and it's going to be interpreted for him. So let's read. Uh, Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. He sees four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another, and a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. This four great beasts is the image in Daniel's vision here. But what is its interpretation? Well, a little bit later in Daniel 7, an angel interprets it for him. Beginning in verse 16, the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down. So, 
the image was for great beasts. What is its interpretation? For kings or kingdoms. Uh, another vision that Daniel has is in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, and I saw a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So the image here is of a ram with two unequal horns. What is its interpretation? Well, an angel tells Daniel. In verse 19, I will make known to you what shall be. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So what does the ram with two unequal horns symbolize in reality? The Medo-Persian Empire. The empire, uh, the collaboration between Media and Persia, one of which the, the ruler of one of which would have been a little bit higher than the other, that kind of thing. So again, continuing this pattern we're seeing, you've got the image, four great beasts, symbolizing four successive kingdoms, or four, and the kings that rule over those. Ram with two unequal horns is the, is the symbol, and what it symbolizes is an empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. This pattern seems to be pretty consistent, and this is just a sampling, all right? Um, but now let's turn to John, another Oniro-critic. He does some of his own interpretation in the book of Revelation, and I'll show you those. But at other times, his, his vision is interpreted by an angelic vision, uh, an, an angelic visitor. So let's go through John's vision. Um, this begins in the very first chapter of, of Revelation, beginning in verse 12. On turning, John writes, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. In his right hand, he held seven stars. So the image here that I want to focus on is seven lampstands and stars. By lampstand, we're talking about not like a, 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 a single shaft with a light on top like we're familiar in, in today. We're, we're, uh, he, he, these would be talking about the menorah, right? The seven or the five branched, seven branched um, menorah that there would have been a gigantic one of in the temple. But that's the imagery here. Seven lampstands and stars. What is its interpretation? We don't have to, we don't have to try and figure that out. Thanks be to God, John interprets it for us. In verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, actually, I think this is Jesus speaking, not John himself. Revelation 1.20, as for the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, we could talk about whether these are actual angels or just the more sort of grassroots meaning of the word angelos, meaning messenger. Same, same with malach in the Hebrew. Um, it means messenger, but it very often refers to angels. The same is true of the Greek word angelos. It sometimes refers to angels, often does, but it just more fundamentally means messenger. So the image is seven lampstands and seven stars. What is the interpretation? Seven angels or messengers and their churches. So, so far, in our little survey in the book of Revelation, we saw that a symbol of seven lampstands in John's vision symbolizes seven churches in reality, and that seven stars in the vision symbolize the church's seven angels or messengers. Uh, but we're by no means done. A few chapters later, in Revelation 4, verses 2 and 5, John says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Okay? So the image here is seven fiery torches. What is its interpretation? Well, it just goes on to say, the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, for us 21st century Western English-speaking Christians, we hear, which are the seven spirits of God, and we go like, what, 
what the heck is that talking about? Well, but that wouldn't have been the case with John's original readers. As, as any um, commentary on the book of Revelation will tell you, what John is referring to here, what, or more properly, what the vision is, is alluding to here is Zechariah chapter 4. I see a lampstand all of gold and seven lamps on it, Zechariah describes. And then an angelic visitor describes or interprets it or goes on to say, uh, quotes, not by my might nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. These seven, the seven lamps, the seven torches of fire are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. These are the seven spirits, uh, the sevenfold spirit of God, the seven spirits of God. As we'll see in a moment, just to reiterate as well, um, but but it's so so when John uh, when the angel interprets for John the seven uh, the, the the seven torches of fire are the seven spirits of God, he is recalling for John's original readers the passage in Zechariah four with which they would have already been very familiar. Um, Something very similar happens in Second Chronicles 16, verses 8 and 9. Uh, because you relied on the Lord, God gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So what it seems to be the case is that the interpretation here of the image of seven torches of fire, the interpretation is that, that those torches of fire symbolize God's limitless sight and power, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, if you will. Um, and we see something very similar just a little bit later in Revelation 5, 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. Again, we have an image of a lamb's seven eyes. I should have said seven horns as well. But it goes on to say, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There again is that reference to Zechariah 4. So the interpretation is God's limitless sight and power. Now, you might think I'm going a little bit too far uh, by saying that the interpretation is God's limitless sight and power. But at the very least, the interpretation is the passage from Zechariah 7, or Zechariah 4. Um, I don't know what you're asking me, Jamie. I'm sorry. And, and I'd rather wait to field questions until the end if possible. So, um, so at the very least, what is seen in John's vision are seven fiery torches, and then again, seven eyes on the lamb, but the interpretation are these seven spirits depicted in Zechariah 4. All right? Um, and then another passage, Revelation 5, verses 6 and 8. I saw the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. The image here is golden bowls of incense. What is its interpretation? Golden, excuse me, golden bowls are full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the interpretation of the bowls of incense is that they symbolize Christians' prayers. So we continue to build up this list. We see that the seven fiery torches that Joseph, uh, sorry, that John saw in his vision and the seven eyes on the lamb, they symbolize the seven spirits that were described and seen by Zechariah which themselves appear to symbolize God's omnipotence, his, his omniscience. But even if you don't want to take it that far, at the very least, the point of this is not fiery torches and lamb's eyes at all. Those are symbols representing the seven spirits that John's readers would have been familiar from with from, from Zechariah 4. And then golden bowls of incense, uh, of incense John sees in his vision, and those are interpreted as symbolizing the prayers of the saints. 
Still not done. Uh, Revelation 11, I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So the image here are two prophetic witnesses. What is its interpretation? I will grant authority to my two witnesses, the, the text goes on to say, these are, that is the two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Again, we 21st century modern English-speaking Westerners don't know what this reference to two olive trees are, but John's readers were. They would have recognized it from drum roll, Zechariah 4 again. Uh, verse 11, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And then verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And as every commentary I consulted um, says, those two anointed ones or sons of oil, I think is what uh, what the literal rendition of the Hebrew is there, um, represent Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the priest. So these two witnesses, these prophetic witnesses in John's vision, symbolize God's royal and priestly agents. All right? Let's keep going. In Revelation 13, John sees a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The symbol here are a beast's heads and horns. What is its interpretation? Well, a few chapters later, an angel is the, acting as the Oniro critic for John and says in verse 7, I will tell you the mystery, and then goes on, of the beast with seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And then he goes on to say, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who are yet to receive authority as kings. So, what is the beast's heads and horns? In, what do those in the vision symbolize in reality? King's past, present, and future. John's past, present, and future. So we continue to build this list. What do these two prof, uh, prophets, these two prophetic witnesses in John's vision symbolize? God's royal priestly agents, which in the book of Revelation is all of God's people who've been made uh, a nation of, of priests and kings from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And what do a beast's seven heads and ten horns in the vision symbolize in reality? Past, present, and future kings. We're not done yet, but I'm getting closer. So if you're if you're getting sick of this, I'm sorry, I really wanted to be thorough in this survey. So we got a little bit longer to go. In Revelation 17, Come, an angel tells John, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And then John says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. That's that beast the, that I was talking about. But here, the image we're focusing on is the harlot seated upon waters. So in the vision, John sees this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute with mystery Babylon written on her forehead, um, and she's seated on many waters. This is the image here. What is its interpretation? Beginning in verse 15, an angel acting as an Oniro critic tells John, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the woman that you saw, this is verse 18, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So that image of the, of the blood drunk vampiric prostitute seated on the waters, what, is the, what does this represent? Uh, the waters, anyway, and and the bee, and, and the woman, a ruling city, and its subjects. Ruling city is what the harlot represents. Its subjects are what the waters represent. 
And that's our final list, uh, our final item in this list. Now that I've done this, and again, there are other examples we could turn to. These are the ones I was able to accumulate in just a couple of days I've been preparing for this uh, presentation. But I want to go through, through them each, both sets, both uh, the ones from the Old Testament in Joseph and Daniel, and the ones up on the screen right now in Revelation, seen by John. I want to go through them one by one and stress some things, right, really quickly. The sheaves bowing that Joseph saw in his dream um, the, were interpreted as representing brothers, Joseph's brothers, submitting to his rule. Had absolutely nothing to do with sheaves of grain, bundles of grain. Nothing at all. It had everything to do with Joseph and his brothers. Nothing at all to do with sheaves. The celestial bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars that Joseph saw in his second dream. Um, the interpretation was his family submitting to his rule. You know what it had nothing to do with? The sun, the moon, and the stars. Those were symbols. The three budding branches that Pharaoh's cupbearer saw in his dream. Joseph interprets those as representing three days. It did. His vision did have something to do with wine. Namely, it's the cupbearer being restored to the, the Pharaoh's office. But the branches have nothing at all to do with what it represents in reality. They're just symbols that Joseph interprets as representing three days. Likewise with three cake baskets. The only thing that the fact that these were cake baskets or bread baskets had to do with their represent with what they symbolize in reality, the only thing that they had to do with bread or with cake was the fact that we're talking about the Pharaoh's baker. But the but the baskets themselves nothing at all to do with what the symbols represent in reality. The seven cows that Pharaoh sees in his first dream. The seven cows, the first one, the first good ones, and then the second set of bad ones. Um, those symbolize, according to Joseph, seven years. First seven years of, of plenty, and then a second seven years of famine. You know what the, what the future had nothing at all to do with? Cows! Especially not with cows eating other cows, right? The cows were just the symbol. Uh, Joseph, who does he symbolize? Joseph doesn't symbolize anybody. Joseph is a real-life person. So I'm not sure what you're talking about there, Jamie. Joseph is the real-life person. What we're, what we're going through is the dreams that he and other people that, uh, that he talked to saw and what the symbols in those dreams represent. Um, the seven years of grain in Pharaoh's second dream symbolize seven years, as Joseph tells us. You know what those seven years have extremely little, if anything, to do with are the fact that these are ears of grain or of corn in the vision. Those are symbols for the reality of durations of time. Nebuchadnezzar, now we're turning to Daniel, all right? And, and Nebuchadnezzar sees a motley statue, a head of gold, a chest of another kind of thing, and then so on and so forth down. And what does the statue's gold head represent in reality, according to Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar himself, the present king. You know what the future events that are foretold by this vision have nothing at all to do with? A statue and gold, <laughs> let alone the statue's golden head, right? The statue's golden head symbolizes the reality of Nebuchadnezzar's then-present reign. And the same is true of, great, of the great tree in Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. This great tree symbolizes, Daniel says, the present king, namely Nebuchadnezzar himself. You know what the future events foretold by that dream had absolutely nothing at all to do with? A tree. Let's continue. The four great beasts in Daniel's vision. 
uh, he is told by an angelic interpreter that the four great beasts symbolize four kings or kingdoms. You know what the future events foretold by Daniel's dream had nothing at all to do with? Beasts. Not at all. They didn't have anything to do with a, with a beast that looks like a leopard, another one that looks like a lion, another one that looks like a bear. None of that. The four beasts, terrifying as they are, symbolize four successive kingdoms. And then lastly, the ram with two unequal horns that Daniel sees in his other dream, um, they symbolize, according to the angelic interpreter, the Medo-Persian Empire. You know what the future events foretold by that dream had absolutely nothing to do with? A ram. And they had nothing at all to do with horns, unequal or otherwise. Now let's turn to John. In John's vision, he sees seven golden lampstands. What is he told or what does he say those symbolize? Seven churches. You know what the future events uh, or, or what those churches have nothing at all to do with? Lampstands. The seven stars in Jesus' right hand in the vision. What do they symbolize according to Jesus? Uh, the seven angels or messengers of the churches. You know what those seven angels or messengers don't have anything at all to do with in reality? Stars. The seven fiery torches that John sees and the seven eyes of the lamb that John sees. What do they symbolize according to um, John? The seven spirits that his readers would have been familiar with from the book of Zechariah chapter 4, which themselves appear to symbolize God's limitless sight and power. Do you know what those spirits uh, in reality have absolutely nothing to do with? Fiery torches. Eyeballs on a lamb. Nothing at all. The torches and the eyes symbolize the reality. They aren't actually the reality. What about the golden bowls of incense that John sees? They, he has told, or he tells us, they symbolize the prayers of the saints. You know what the prayers of the saints have absolutely nothing to do with? Bowls, gold, and incense. Well, they might have had something to do with gold. Some people might pray for gold. But you see my point, right? Or what about the two prophetic witnesses? We're told they symbolize God's royal priestly agents uh, like those, like Zerubbabel and, and, and um, the other person I mentioned in uh, fr from, from Zechariah. I think, I think I said Josiah. Um, they symbolize the God's royal priestly agents, not two prophetic witnesses who actually have fire come out of their mouths, as John sees. The beast's heads and the horns, John is told, symbolize kings, both in uh, John's past and present and in his future. You know what those beasts' uh, heads and horns, that beast's heads and horns have nothing at all to do with? Heads and horns and beasts. Those are symbols. The blood-drunk harlot, you know, John is told what that symbolizes, a powerful ruling city. And you know what that city and its destruction has absolutely nothing to do with? Being vampiric and drinking blood or being a prostitute? That's a symbol. And one more, the waters that the harlot is seated upon in John's vision. John is told those that water symbolizes that ruling city's subjects. You know what those city's subjects have nothing to do with? Water upon which a prostitute is seated. I'm hoping, I've, I've, I've belabored this point a lot, because it seems to me self-evident and obvious that there are three things that all of these and other examples uh, in Scripture all share in common. Firstly, what a seer or prophet sees in a prophetic vision in Scripture symbolizes the future. It isn't actually the future. Number two, 
a symbol's interpretation is about its otherwise hidden real-life referent. It's not about the thing that is seen itself. Right? So there's what the prophet sees, and there's its interpretation, but the interpretation has to do with what the symbol represents. It doesn't have to do with the symbol itself. And lastly, interpretation points seers and their readers to realities with which they were already familiar, or realities with which uh, that would have already been recognizable to them. All right? Now, what does all of this this past 40 minutes or whatever that I've been going through, what does all of this have to do with the first resurrection of Revelation chapter 20? Well, let's return to that passage now. Verses 4 and 5, I saw those who had been beheaded um, because they refused to take the beast's mark, etc. I saw these martyrs. They came to life, or lived, is, is probably the more literal Greek translation, or translation of the Greek. They came to life or lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So what is the imagery in John's vision? Risen martyrs reigning with Christ for a thousand years before others rise from the dead as well. That's the image. Martyrs that have raised, been raised from the dead or at the very least are alive and are reigning with Christ for a thousand years before the rest of the dead a thousand years later. That's the symbol. The thing in the image, the thing in the vision that John sees. What is its interpretation? This is the first resurrection. That's the interpretation. Now remember what we what we looked at before, uh, when we when we summarized the three things that we can learn from these numerous examples of prophetic visions and their interpretations. Firstly, what we can learn we can apply what we've learned to this passage in Revelation twenty, we can by by saying that the risen martyrs reigning with Christ symbolize John's future. It's not the future itself. If it did, this would be an extreme um, exception to the way that biblical prophetic dreams work all throughout Scripture. No, the risen martyrs reigning with Christ in John's vision symbolize John's future. It isn't the future itself. That's number one. Number two, as interpretation... The phrase, the first resurrection, is about what this scene symbolizes. It's not about the reigning martyrs themselves. And lastly, first resurrection is a concept that must have been familiar or recognizable to John's original readers. And I want to talk about this third point first, or, or most importantly, that, that the first resurrection was an interpretation that was familiar or recognizable to John's readers. Because here's the thing. That word resurrection, you will find no places in scripture or, as far as I can tell, the intertestamental literature where that ref word refers to any of the amillennialist interpretations that we looked at before. You will find nobody using the word resurrection to refer to either regeneration or to the onset of the beatific vision in the intermediate state immediately after death. So first resurrection as a phrase and as a concept would have not been familiar to John's readers as a picture of regeneration or of the onset of, the inter of a blissful intermediate state. You want to know what John's readers would have recognized first resurrection as? The answer is right there in scripture. 
Let's look at first John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. You know who is the resurrection? Christ. I am the resurrection, he says, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice not only that Jesus is here calling himself the resurrection, but he's also saying that by virtue of his resurrection, everyone who is in him will likewise be raised. But more importantly than this are the next passages I want to look at. Acts 26, verse 22 and 23, Paul is standing before King Agrippa, and he's, being, he's, he's defending himself. He's on trial, and he says, I stand here testifying, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, namely, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, the Israelites, and to the Gentiles. What is the first resurrection? Christ. Or Christ's is the first resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 23, Paul says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Again, what do we see? We see firstly that Christ is the resurrection, specifically the first resurrection. And we see that his resurrection is what guarantees the future resurrection of those who are in him. Colossians 1, 17-18, Paul says, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. He is the first resurrection. Or his is the first resurrection. And Revelation itself, at the very beginning of the book that we're looking at, Jesus uh, or J J John is greeting his readers, and he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, who made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Again, we see Jesus as the first resurrection right here, or at least his resurrection is the first resurrection, and we see that by virtue of his resurrection and, and our union with him, we are kings and priests to his God and Father. So what is the message of all of these? The message of all of these, uh, when we apply what we've learned about the way prophetic visions and their interpretations work in Scripture, when we apply that to Revelation 20 and the first resurrection, we see that the first resurrection, as the interpretation of the scene, isn't at all about or describing the martyrs reigning with Christ in the scene. It's about what that scene symbolizes in reality and what the, res first, what the first resurrection is as an interpretation of that scene is the resurrection of the resurrection himself, Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. Um, now, I'm not the first to come up with this. Uh, the best person I found that represents this view is Philip Edgecombe Hughes. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, he writes this, In the whole of the New Testament, there is only one resurrection of such central importance that it qualifies without rival to be designated the first resurrection, and that is the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He goes on to say, The first resurrection of which the Christian believer partakes is not in himself, that is the individual believer, but in Christ. They have a part in the first resurrection, which is not their resurrection, but the true bodily resurrection of the incarnate Son. 
And look how much sense that makes of what John goes on to say after he interprets the scene as symbolizing the first resurrection. He goes on to say, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him. You remember what we just looked at a moment ago at the very beginning of Revelation 1? Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead, who has made us a kingdom and priests. Uh, remember what we looked at in John 11? I am the resurrection. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So when we get to, so, so when John says blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, that is the event symbolized by the scene of martyrs reigning in heaven with Christ. Over, uh, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection because over them, the second death has no power. They will not die a second time. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. It, it's it's obvious. It fits perfectly. Um, and, and, and Hughes goes on to say, it is because of their participation in the resurrection of Jesus that the second death has no power over them. There is no second death for him, Christ, and therefore no second death for those who by grace are one with him. Philip Edgecombe Hughes is the best um, uh, exponent of... Uh, he, he, he's articulated this the best, as far as I can tell. But he's not the only one. Uh, G.K. Beale, the amillennialist who, who, whose interpretation of the first resurrection I've, I've told you is wrong. He actually, he, it is wrong, but he does offer this alternative. He says, this is, he says in his same commentary, he says these parallels, the ones that we've just gone through, uh, you know, John 11, Acts 26, 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians 1, Revelation 1. He says these parallels to Revelation 24 to 6 are too close to be coincidental but imply that the first resurrection is Christ's resurrection, with which saints are spiritually identified. David Chilton, still older than G.K. Beale's commentary, in his commentary on the book of Revelation called The Days of Vengeance, he likewise writes, there is thus to be a resurrection at the end of history, but before that final resurrection, there is another, a first resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, the firstfruits. So, I'm not alone in seeing this. Um, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, G.K. Beale, and David Chilton all see this connection as well. I, there, I'm assuming there are others, but I've not yet done enough historical research to know. And that'd be something I'd welcome from you viewers, is to see if there are other examples, especially in the ancient church, of people understanding the first resurrection this way. But something I want to stress here is that... Um, the, the case I've made for first resurrection being an interpretation of the imagery is enough to establish that what Hughes and Beale and Chilton are here saying is true. I'm sorry, you premillennialists, you're wrong. The first resurrection has nothing to do with saints being raised bodily from the dead or um, with saints reigning in heaven. Nothing at all. The first resurrection is Christ's resurrection. But... The problem that all three of these people, Hughes to a certain extent, but also G.K. Beale and David Chilton and some others, uh, the, 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 the mistake that they make is thinking that there's um, that the first resurrection, in addition to referring to Christ's resurrection, also somehow describes saints actually reigning as John sees them in his vision. But what did we see? Go back to... Um, the two, two, the first two of the three main points that we uh, extrapolated from this survey of biblical visions. Risen martyrs 
reigning with Christ symbolizes John's future. It is not the future itself. And secondly, as interpretation, the first resurrection is about what this scene symbolizes. It's not about the reigning martyrs themselves. So Hughes, Beale, and Chilton all get right that first resurrection is Christ's resurrection. But what they all get wrong, and what premillennialists get wrong, is that the saints, that the martyred saints, living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years, is not the future. It symbolizes the future. Or in this case, actually, it was John, it was the past, it was the resurrection of Christ, but also the fact that all throughout the church age, those of us who are united with Christ are kings and priests. We rule and reign now. We rule and, and serve now. The, so, so the premillennialist takes the saints, the martyred saints living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years as if that's actually the future. It is not. And the typical amillennialist and postmillennialist interpretations think that the saints, the, the martyrs reigning in heaven with Christ is actually a picture of the intermediate state or of regeneration. But no, this is not about those, uh, those saints that John sees in the vision anymore then Joseph's dream was about bundles of wheat, or Pharaoh's dream was about cows, or Nebuchadnezzar's was about statues. No, these are all symbols. So let me finish, wrap this up by, by now depicting what I think is the very obvious um, understanding of the first resurrection. It is amillennialist, or possibly postmillennialist, uh, but it's not the popular amillennialist interpretations, and it's not premillennialist. Those are all wrong. The right interpretation is this. Here's a timeline. Here's now. In the past was the first resurrection, which was Christ being raised bodily, in which Christians throughout the church age participate by virtue of our union with Christ. And at the end of the church age, the second resurrection, which is the humankind, the, the, the bodily resurrection of all humankind. This, what is on the screen right now, is what the first resurrection um, actually is. It's Christ's resurrection. Premillennialism is wrong. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's like heresy or anything. Uh, and I know I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, a little bit confident, um, maybe more so than I should be. But, I mean, you've seen how these visions work all throughout Scripture. Premillennialism is wrong. Either amillennialism or postmillennialism is true, but the typical amillennialist and postmillennialist understandings of the first resurrection are mistaken. The first resurrection is neither the onset of the intermediate state for believers, nor is it regeneration. It is bodily resurrection, which is, of course, what the word resurrection means. But it's Christ's, not that of saints. So, uh, whoops, I didn't mean to... <laughs> Sorry, I hit the wrong button. I didn't mean to do that transition back to uh, full screen. I meant to uh, do just a simple fade. But hopefully um, that helps you understand at least where I'm coming from. Um, and hopefully I've persuaded some of you that at the very least, the premillennialist and common amillennialist interpretations of the first resurrection are by no means clear. They are by no means the self-evidently right ones. Quite the opposite. They all share a fundamental flaw, a fundamental fatal flaw, and that is they treat the phrase first resurrection as if it's a description of what's going on in the vision. But as we saw all throughout, all throughout scripture, 
the interpretation of visions is not describing what's taking place in the visions. It's telling you what the symbols in the vision represent. Now, this has some other applications, by the way, just as a side note. And by the way, if you're in the chat right now and you wanted to ask a question at some point and I either said wait until later or I didn't even see it, I'll give you a few minutes now. Go ahead and post your question in the chat if you've got it. But the point I'm getting to in all of this is that uh, or what I was about to just say was that this has applications beyond uh, merely the first resurrection. Um, when John says that, or when John's angel tells him the seven heads of the beast are seven kings, five have fallen, one now is, and a seventh is yet to come, um, that should tell you that a uh, dispensational premillennialist view of Revelation's beast is wrong. That is a succession of kings that was the, the sixth of which was ruling at the time that John saw his vision. And the seventh one was, was coming shortly thereafter. Um, so there's one application and that's a whole other video. Um, the second death is not a description of what's taking place in the imagery as if death is tell as if John is telling you that what death means is tormented in a lake of fire. No, the second death is the interpretation of the scene. So there are and, and there are other places that I'd be interested to see how this logic um, applies to. Uh, but at least on today's show, I think I've established pretty decisively, although I'm open to being proven wrong, I think I've established pretty decisively that number one, premillennialism is wrong. Number two, either amillennialism or postmillennialism is true, but the popular amillennialist slash postmillennialist interpretations are wrong. Um, and that rather, number three, the first resurrection is that of Christ. It's that of Christ. And the second resurrection is the general resurrection, the universal resurrection of all humankind. Okay. I've got some questions in here now. Uh, the fifth trumpet asks, how do I reconcile that John is looking at things in the Lord's day or the latter days? Uh, very simple. He's the, the Lord's day or the day of the Lord is not only a reference to the final ultimate day of the Lord in the distant future. The day of the Lord is something that happens a number of times all throughout scripture. It's whenever jo God judges a people, a nation, especially the nation of Israel. And so the day of the Lord, in which John is seeing things depicted in his vision, that's a reference to the judgment that was to befall uh, Jerusalem and, and Israel in the first century in 70 AD. Um, so that seems pretty straightforward. And, and that's, of course, assuming that day of the Lord or the Lord's day in Revelation is a reference to that eschatological kind of judgmental kind of day of the Lord. There are many Christians who would say that the Lord's day in Revelation is actually Sunday the day the Lord, the day on which the Lord rose. That is not my view, but I'm just saying it's by no means um, clear to everybody that John is talking about uh, a judgment type day of the Lord. But if he was, and I think he was, he's referring to AD 70, um, in which, or around which, the vast majority of his vision would be fulfilled. Blake says, so when Christ returns according to this interpretation, believers and non-believers are resurrected? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Jamie says, Paul says we shall judge angels, but in your view and timeline of application of the things we do now as reigning with Christ suggests this ruling and reigning with Christ is a present truth. It is a, it is a present truth, what, but what isn't the truth of at least what is being depicted and interpreted in the book of Revelation is that that reigning and, and, and that we're doing is in the intermediate state or something like that. No, it's we are kings and priests now. 
Now, whether or not that's what it means that we will one day rule over angels or judge angels is a whole other question. And frankly, probably not, I would say. I think that the judging angels is something that awaits fulfillment in our future and the, the, um, on the last day. But uh, the point is, is that yes, this ruling and reigning with Christ is indeed a present truth. And you know what? Christ himself, or I mean, the New Testament itself says so. You are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Uh, Susan asks, is Philip Edgecombe Hughes a conditionalist? Yes, he is or was. I, I can't remember if he's still alive, but he was a conditionalist or is a conditionalist, yes. Um, that's all I see, although I think Jamie is posting one more question. That'll probably be the last one because I've been on for almost two hours now and I'm getting a little bit tired and hungry. Um, but hopefully, oh, here, okay, here's another one. Daniel Reloaded says, Chris, do you think it's possible that the thousand-year limited lifespan, which the pre-flood patriarchs approached but failed to reach, has any prophetic significance in your view? Uh, no. Um, I, I don't think it's impossible that there's some relevance there. I just don't think there is. Um... Yeah, I don't know what to tell you, Daniel. Sorry, I couldn't be of more help. Um, Jamie, I'm still watching to see if you have a question in your upcoming comment. But anyway, hopefully this was helpful. Um, again, I, I don't really expect to have convinced every uh, premillennialist or every amillennialist or postmillennialist who holds to one of those wrong interpretations I went through earlier. But I do hope to have at least given you pause, caused you to think, uh, even if you don't ultimately share my view, I do want you to take seriously this reality that is all throughout Scripture that biblical prophets, when they see prophetic visions, are not seeing the future. They are seeing symbols that symbolize the future. And phrases like, this is the second death, this is the first resurrection, the seven heads or seven kings. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, these are not descriptions of what's taking place in the imagery. These are uh, interpretations. They're not about what's taking place in the imagery. They're about what the real life meaning symbolized by those symbols is. Then, once you've accepted that, then apply it to this is the first resurrection, and hopefully you'll end up coming to the same conclusion I did. Last thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, so judging angels is still in the future. Yes, Jamie, I think that's probably the case. Um, and quite frankly, it's not clear to me what it means that Christians are right now saints and or, or, or kings in the first place right and um i think all of us could bake our noodles about that trying to figure out what that means but again paul says we've been seated in the heavenlies with christ we are at god's right hand with christ right now i am even though i'm still alive so yeah anyway um thank you sandra for thanking me i hope this has been helpful and hopefully somewhat persuasive don't hesitate to email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com or send or, or befriend me on facebook and you can chat via messenger there um either way i'd love to hear from you and i'd love to find out if you think there's a flaw in my case or if you think that uh my case is persuasive and has changed your mind or at least has gotten you to rethink the, the issue any of those comments i'd appreciate i'd love to hear from you um, in two weeks time I don't I don't know for sure what I'm going to do but I'm thinking um, that what I'm going to do in the next episode in two weeks time is talk about what I think is the best not ideal but best analogy for the relationship between God and creation um, in terms of how they're related to one another in time because when we think of God as creator, we'll sometimes think of him as creating, uh, we'll think in our heads that he's something like a craftsman or a, 
um, artist or something like that. But in those and similar analogies, God and the creation are both on the same plane of existence. I think that the better analogy, again, not ideal, but the better analogy is the relationship between um, uh, an author and a story that he comes up with. And I'm thinking that in two weeks' time, I'm going to talk about how that analogy can help us to make sense of a lot of areas of theology and and, and um, help us in our apologetics endeavors. And then I'll probably do a follow-up two weeks later uh, after that, in which I talk about how that might inform the soteriology debate between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. So that's kind of a, that's a rough idea of what I intend to do in two weeks, and then again in two weeks after that. In the meantime, I hope to get the first of my Hebrew lectures up uh, on The Apologetics Extra, so be on the lookout for those. Don't forget you have until the end of this week, December 4th, to take advantage of those Black Friday Cyber Monday deals at biblingo.org, and I very highly recommend it. At the very least, go there today, sign up for a free trial, try it out for a couple of days, and if you like what you get there, sign up and uh, and email me, again, theapologetics at hotmail.com right here uh, uh, on the screen, um, and I'll give you my activation code, uh, or my reference referrer code, and that way we can both get five bucks credit. Hopefully all of that's been helpful. Um, come back two weeks time. It'll be Monday, December 14th, the day after my 41st birthday, uh, Monday, December 14th at 6 PM Pacific, 9 PM Eastern, um, for the next episode of the apologetics. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching the apologetics where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then, 